and welcome to Science, the new weekly podcast from Startup Daily TV, which you can watch on Ausbeers every weekday from 2pm. I'm Simon Thompson, editor of StartupDaily.net, and you must be... I'm Elliot Hasty, and look, I'm going to come out straight off the bat. My voice might sound a little bit different this week, Simon. Why would that have happened, Elliot? <laughs> look, Mardi Gras came around. It was a fantastic event. I mean, we've obviously seen... All this rain that Sydney has been getting this week, but on Saturday it was clear blue skies uh, and just honestly had a great time, but I'm pretty sure I'm still recovering. Elliot, <laughs> I take that as a sign that God loves diversity because it was spectacular in this deluge that we had an entire afternoon and evening of no rain. So thank you to whoever is running upstairs because uh, it was great. It was great to see you having such a great time. It's great to see you back here slowly coming back together after such a fabulous experience. And it's almost the weekend, so, you know, let's do it all again. Um, but now, speaking of return to work, Elliot, <laughs> this is where we're going to get straight into it with Google, the big news this week. Yeah, so they are returning to their offices after nearly two years, and it's Interesting that we're talking about this, Simon, today because one of my friends works at Google in the office in New York and he put up on Instagram two photos of his lunches that he's had and, oh, my God, I would work at Google in a heartbeat. I would never not be in the office. I mean, that's been part of the sort of depressing thing about working from home for the last two years. You wander over, you look in your fridge and you kind of realise it's just a little bit barren and the leftovers aren't particularly good. And those times where you normally would have ducked down to a sandwich bar or whatever your favourite takeaway is here at Barangaroo where we're based, you know, you can get fish and chips, you can get a range of Asian, the Burke Street Bakery's there with its fabulous sausage rolls. So much choice, we're spot for it. But when you're at home, it's kind of like, you know, a limp lettuce and maybe a leftover piece of cheese. And I think that's, you know, they're doing the hybrid work model so everyone can sort of choose how they want to go about it, I guess. I mean, what are your thoughts, Simon? How would you prefer to do the work? Well, as you know, we're in here every day. The show is done in the studio, so we have been. But, of course, many of the team uh, at Pinstripe, which is where Startup Daily is published, have been working from home over that period. I've actually loved coming in and hanging out with you guys. You know, I know that writers like Casey Newton are railing against this and, you know, he points out some of the flaws in the logic. But I do think we are social animals and I think it's a necessary part of how we operate as teams. I really think it's interesting that Google is sort of setting this benchmark of at least once a week. So you do get that really interesting shift in how one of the biggest and you know most successful tech companies in the world is approaching what has gone from a necessity to, in some ways, an experiment now. And we're just going to have to see how it pans out, how everyone feels temperature checks. It will be really interesting whether it also sets the benchmark for others because, of course, Joe Biden last week said that the vast majority of federal employees will turn to the, return to office during his State of the Union speech. So all of that stuff is really happening with everyone getting back in. How it plays out will be fascinating. It's now just going to be something you put in your contract when you start. You'll be like, right, what are your what are your flexible work policies? It's going to be a standard and you're going to say, right, I'll come in every Tuesday, Thursday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm at home. I, I think that's just how companies are going to have to just accept those will be part of employment uh, contract discussions. But I, but I think the other fascinating thing is we've now shifted from physical as an idea of work 
to productivity. And that's where it gets really interesting because it's one of those things that we discussed on Tuesday at International Women's Day with some of the female founders and executives that I spoke to. Of course, women do a lot of the family labour, the emotional labour in terms of, you know, raising a family. And that means sort of, you know, having to leap out of the office at sort of three o'clock in the afternoon or, you know, the school calls and a kid is sick all of that sort of stuff, it's a little easier to do when you are working from home. Um, but, of course, you still get your job done. That's the extraordinary thing I've always noticed about women. Give them a limited amount of time, they'll get twice as much done as a bloke. <laughs> <laughs> we no longer need to just sit at the desk. Now, one of the other stories, Simon, um, that came across the desk was, of course, about Klarna, um, mega unicorn, but much of this growth came at quite a cost. Yeah, look, it's really fascinating piece that I was actually reading in TechCrunch this week, which just points out the issues all around what's going on. Because, of course, the company is worth an astonishing, I think, 45 billion US dollars. The CBA backed it very early on, so it's done quite well out of this meteoric growth. But the whole thing is it's starting to flatline. And what they talked about was how, you know, the company itself generated a 1.375 billion dollars in revenue in uh, US dollars uh, in 2021, but had a $658 million operating loss and a $709 million net loss. Now, we're seeing similar numbers with the likes of Afterpay. We're now starting to see consolidation in terms of those BNPLs coming together. And Sezzle, yeah. We're going to see a lot more of that and a lot more partnerships going along the way because, of course, we've seen the share prices drop. It's, it's, there's a real sense that we're in a new sort of tectonic shift in terms of how BNPLs are operating after this meteoric rise over the last couple of years. And I think there is a place to them. I mean, I know some of my colleagues out in Osbiz would disagree, but I certainly know that there is a place for them because people don't want a credit card. And this gives people the accessibility of paying things off as they go along. And some people just genuinely like the checkout experience because you can click on your iconic order after pay, boom, it's done. It, the money will come out of your account similar as it would anything else, but it's just easy. But here's the other fascinating thing. You know, you remember I made a little bit of a joke the other week when Claren, Klarna announced it was introducing its pay now feature mm. here in Australia. It's been going around the world for a while now. Fascinating statistic out of that. 60% of Klarna users use the pay now. So really, we're just talking about a payments platform. We're not talking about the BNPL part. We're just figuring out how we're going to pay the bill. They just want young, fun things to do. And one of those young, fun things is, of course, cryptocurrency sign, which you had quite an extended chat about the regulation side. Well, just as Snoop Dogg is to Kleiner, I'm thinking Senator Andrew Bragg is to crypto. Uh, and, of course, he gave a major speech at the blockchain conference last week. So we had a little bit of a chat with him about what was going on. And one of the questions I asked him was about regulation and balancing that with innovation. Now, as he makes the point, there's around about 600 exchanges running around He's a really fascinating number. What he said was he expects there might be 20 or 30 left after regulation comes in. Um, and he's talked about what they're going to do around consultation for capital requirements. Here are his points. We will need to do a lot of detailed consultation on what sort of capital requirements, for example, would be appropriate. Um, now, there needs to be a fixed amount but also a variable component. And I think that gives us great flexibility because I'm very conscious as a small government person that we don't want to eliminate new players uh, and we don't want to create out artificial barriers to entry. But we have to be honest, Simon, 
and be clear that in putting in place a capital requirement, there will be a big consolidation of the 600 digital currency exchanges. And we might see as few as 20 or 30 in the future. And so that's the trade-off we're willing to make in order to protect consumers. And that's where we have decided to go as a country. We have, just, we have decided to regulate crypto, not in the exact same way as every other financial product, but we have decided to regulate it. And there are trade-offs and governments need to be honest about those trade-offs. And I think the interesting thing is he does say, you know, there will be consultation, but the government needs to be honest about, you know, there will be trade-offs. Not everyone's going to be happy. It's as simple as that. But also the industry is clamouring for it. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I suppose there's also that sense that we are going to get the cowboys out of it. And, you know, we've seen collapses. We've seen some really crazy things going on along the way. And, of course, with that NFT layer over the top of it, it's getting even wilder. I mean... Did you see the story about the porn star who sort of was doing NFTs and then suddenly disappeared <laughs> with all of the money? Um, yeah, but the really fun part about, I suppose, that discussion we had with Bragg was he was talking about how everyone, um, that experience needs to be understood in Canberra as they start to roll out the changes. And one of the calls that he made in his speech and to when talking to us on Startup Daily was about how you should get a job in Treasury if you're a crypto expert. So, guys, if you're keen on Canberra, has Andrew Bragg got a deal for you? Have a listen. The Canberra idea, which is a purpose-built capital in the middle of nowhere, means you're always a long way from the market. But you're a very long way away from the dynamism of the crypto world, which is changing by the day. So um, my point would be that we need to make sure that people come into the Treasury from the outside, and that will help us make the best possible laws. So I think people that are really passionate about this space, they should do their patriotic duty and apply for a job at Treasury. Patriotic duty is to join the Treasury. It's a lot more palatable to me than joining the military. However, I get his point. Well, wouldn't you salute Bitcoin if you had the chance, Elliot? <laughs> I'm certain that one of the producers out in the office would. I mean, it makes sense. So if you're interested in it, join the Treasury and you can be involved in shaping its future in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. But speaking of patriotism, Elliot, I then asked him about what's going on in the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the fact that the crypto exchanges aren't going to play um, ball in terms of the Ukrainian Prime Minister has pleaded with them and the finance minister to block Russian transactions. Of course, we're seeing global sanctions all over the place. Just overnight, uh, Joe Biden, the US president, has announced that they won't be buying any Russian fuel anymore. We're seeing a whole range of sanctions and clampdowns. Crypto exchanges are sort of staying in there. Um, he had some really interesting points to make on this front, especially as the layer of regulation is coming and governments are going to be involved in this space. And the point is there's probably a backlash coming off the back of this. Well, this is a very important question. And SWIFT, I believe, will make a big difference in terms of the financing of the war from Russia's point of view. But it won't provide a complete solution. And cryptocurrency is a bit of a backdoor here. And I know that there are people who love crypto that are also very keen on the libertarian bent. But we can't have a situation where legally, a product which is used by millions of people can provide a backdoor. And that's the same argument we would use domestically of the need to regulate crypto. So I, I would expect that 
governments which have regulation in this space would ask market operators to switch off Russian crypto users just as we would a normal financial market. I think that is an entirely reasonable proposition and another reason why we need to have a stronger set of regulation in this space. We have to be honest about this. Um, we are crossing the Rubicon. We have decided to regulate crypto. It's not going to be the Wild West and therefore the normal expectations will apply. It's certainly an interesting space, one that we will be watching, certainly in Australia, but even in the US. Elizabeth Warren has just started to draft um, legislation to stop crypto being used to avoid sanctions. Um, there is actually, there's one crypto exchange that's blocking new applicants for it. So CoinZoon, it's pretty small by sort of big standards, but... Um, the tide, is, the tide is slowly turning, I think, on, on those exchanges. Absolutely. If you click on Russian oligarch when filling out your application, <laughs> you won't be allowed to sign up. Now, one of the conversations I had on Friday, Simon, was with Peter Goldsworthy, uh, who's the ge- general manager of startups over in Launchvik, over, down under, <laughs> in Launchvik. Um, and they are creating more and more unicorns, which is just simply outstanding with their plan Um 30 Victorian startups into Unicorn, Simon. 30 by 30 is the name of the program. It's going to be a free program and it's going to help companies that are really looking to go to that next level and to get to a billion-dollar valuation achieve that. Really ambitious because, of course, what they're talking about is there's about 19 around at the moment in terms of unicorns. Think of the likes of Air Wallachs. Um, but they want to get it to roughly 50 by 2030. So how are they going to do that? Well, the really interesting part is it's not anything particularly sexy. There's no secret source. It's actually dealing with the basic housekeeping of building a company. So he just explained that, I think, in a really clear way here. As a serial founder, I've, I've experienced firsthand that moment that you raise a large round and suddenly that the growth ambitions of the company are 10Xs. And yet the support functions that enable this growth, they're lagging at 1X. And namely those are the HR, ops and finance functions. So 30 by 30 is a fully subsidized program. What we're aiming to do is to free up the founder's time, building up the scale-ups capability in these three functions. It was very clear. At first, I thought, oh, you're just going to give them all a billion dollars. Victoria somehow <laughs> has that money. They're going to hit this 30. But Thank you, taxpayers. Yeah, it will be incredible to see how it goes, the companies that come out of it, because in the end of the day, it does benefit the sector. And I love the ambition of this. I love that LaunchVic is getting involved and helping these companies with something that is kind of quite basic. And, of course, it's that forward-thinking aspect of government where you are saying, okay, if we help you do the sort of basics that we kind of deal with on a daily basis, you're going to be successful. Hopefully you'll make enough money to pay tax and uh, everyone will benefit, not, not as well as the jobs that it will bring along the way. And, you know, speaking of capital raises, there was an EdTech one for Fred, which was led by French a vet French VC. So we're going internationally, um, of course, for some of our startups. Yeah, and the great thing about that is it's an impact VC uh, founded by a woman many years ago with expertise in this space. But ForthRev is a really fascinating company because they're trying to sort of bridge the digital skills gap and get people into the space quickly with really clever courses. And one of the ones that they've done is a partnership. They're called Career Accelerators. They've done one with the London School of Economics. They're talking to Australian universities. The whole idea is sort of talking to the tech sector, finding out what they want and need, shaping the courses accordingly, and then them being delivered by tertiary institutions. Now, Omar De Silva, the founder, talked about this capital race, and I thought it was a really fascinating conversation 
because what he took us through was not only when to race and thinking about that, and he's honest to admit there was a little bit of guesswork, but what's really fascinating is, of course, that he has attracted capital from around the world for Fourth Rev. Here's what he had to say about that fundraising. The fundraising process was was a really interesting one. Um, our seed round was led by Reach Capital out of the US. And as the business started to hit, to hit the milestones that we'd set out to and, and the, the time was becoming right to set out for our Series A, we, of course, we had the conversations uh, with Reach and our also our, our pre-seed investors, Emerge Education out of the UK. And as a team, we started asking the question, when is the right time for us to go out? Um, and we had, to, we had to make some guesses, to be honest, some, some educated guesses, of course, but, but guesses nonetheless because there was a new product that we were taking to market with, um, with the London School of Economics, as you mentioned. In that, we were sort of trying to balance out the runway that we had and when was too early to go out for the Series A and not have enough metrics uh, and data to sort of back ourselves versus what's the right balance of being too late and potentially too greedy where things don't go as quickly or as smoothly as you'd like and all of a sudden uh, you're, you're under pressure. So where we ended up was was making a decision in going earlier rather than later. Uh, and as a result of that, taking the time to speak with as many funds as we could to, to get the best fit. And that meant that we spoke from everybody from Airtree and Blackbird here in Australia um, to, to plenty of firms out of the US uh, and then ultimately landed on Edu Capital, as you mentioned, which is Europe's uh, oldest and largest ed tech fund, um, started by, by a couple of amazing women with a really strong focus on impact, which was aligned very, very nicely uh, to our business. And so so that sort of continued strategic value that we could get from our investors was really important to us as the business continued on its global expansion. We've now got the UK, Europe uh, and the US covered with our strategic investment. It is great because he's directly addressing with the startup, obviously, that skill shortage that we talk about all the time here um, that's only going to grow as well, and it you know is some really interesting insights into his fundraising process. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, there was another big bunch of raises this week, uh, and a couple of ones that I really, really loved from women along the way. The other side, of course, of raising is the investors. And one of the people we spoke to for International Women's Day was April Allen, the co-founder of Tractor Ventures. She did that with her husband, Matt. Hi, Matt, if you're listening. I know he was incredibly proud of his wife on the show yes, uh, on Tuesday. And so I asked her how they got into investing because they started about 10 years ago. They put around about $500,000 into assorted companies over those initial years before they founded Tractor. And she told the story, and I think it's really interesting about how a couple works in approaching something like investing and risk. Uh, well, uh, my husband and I started investing together from our household equity at, uh, through our self-managed super fund. So that was a about 2012, I think it was, when Zero uh, Jewel listed on uh, the ASX and the New Zealand Stock Exchanges. Mm. Uh, so that was our first capital that we could start using. Uh, and from there, we were able to um, continue investing in tech startups. Um, back then, it was called Practice Ignition. They've just rebranded as Ignition yep. uh, and, and so on. So um, I was the more conservative partner, I guess, in that decision-making. Um, but I had a sense of, without knowing it at the time, our risk profile, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
um, because I was sensitive to Matt's moods around our household finance. So if he was interested in something shiny, I was the second check about, well, okay, well, you weren't feeling that confident a few days ago, so where are you at now? So that's where it began for me. Well, certainly what a great, great team. And, you know, they just started because, you know, their first investment was zero. Imagine Imagine that. Well, you know, you, you kind of... It's, it's pretty much a 10 bag off the go, isn't it? That's kind of like, you know, winning the grand final in your first footy season. I think that's just absolutely uh, amazing. And then, of course, what is now known as Ignition, Practice Ignition, was another one that they invested in. More recently, they've been backing Mr Yum, of course, female-led company, which has had astonishing growth in recent years. But... The really interesting thing about Tractor is it's the alternative to equity venture capital. Normally, you know, you're cutting up the pie and handing over a slice to the VC. That's not what this is. This is uh, debt in terms of capital that is repaid from the cash flow in your business. So they're slightly different businesses from, you know, your hockey stick, high growth companies. And one of the fascinating things when April was looking through who they support was the fact that not only are they a husband and wife partnership in this business, but often couples are the companies that they back. I asked her why she thinks that is. Here's what she said. Our hypothesis is mm -hmm. um, that our product suits um, those founders um, because they're ambitious, but they're also deliberate with how they spend their money. Often their, you know, their household mortgage is part of their business funding mm -hmm. uh, and so our um, our debt is good for them um, it means that they can have more control over you know retaining the equity in their business it means they can have more control over the pace that they are set um, because when you take venture you then have some big hockey stick milestones to try yep. and make um, and and with our uh, with the couples in our portfolio you know they've some of them have young families uh, they live out of Sydney and Melbourne um, so there's there's other life factors uh, where our funding is makes the most sense for their situation some really interesting insights for them how you know people do require different things for different situations and it was sort of similar to another conversation you had on International Women's Day with Stella um, from Cannabuild, who, you know, she was saying that she created this thing partly for her family. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just kind of had a hint when I was sort of, again, thinking about this thing of how families operate. Really smart woman. This is her second construction startup, but of course, she got into the space because she was surrounded by family who are involved in construction and I did at one stage ask her whether she did this just to sort of try and get her husband home a little bit earlier to maybe help cook dinner, bath the kids, do all of that because of course we all feel work pressures that can take sort of impinge on family time. She sort of said yeah that's actually one of the reasons why she's been so innovative because to explain can I build what it is is it uh, it's raised eight million dollars in a series A that it announced this week but what it does is enables you to basically quote and take your customer through a construction uh, project on a site. So it might be a house, it could be a pool, it could be a shed, it could be one of those granny flats, which actually was the project that Stella started with, with her first startup. But because it was International Women's Day, Elliot, I did want to finish by asking her about her message for women who want to have a crack in the technology and startup space because, of course, she is in a male-dominated industry, really being a pioneer and carving out her own path. She had some great advice. Have a listen. I have two daughters and I guess 
what's really important is that women need to acknowledge that they are amazing and do have skills that businesses and companies want and need. Um, I think second to that is confidence. Have confidence in yourselves. You can achieve whatever it is you want and project that confidence outwardly. If you're oozing confidence, it's very hard to turn you down and it's very hard to overlook you. So I think, you know, women can achieve whatever it is they set their minds to. Just go for it. I just love um, love her honesty about it all. Now, Simon, you are off this weekend to an in-person startup gathering. I think actually it, it's 12 months has passed and uh, for the first time we'll be back at an event and it, it will be South Start. I think that was the last one we went to uh, 12 you months ago. You just snuck down, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, and then we went back into our lockdowns and all the crazy. So I'm really looking forward to catching up with many people in the tech sector down there. I will, of course, be emceeing a major uh, uh uh, event on Friday morning as the host as we talk about the state of startups in Australia. Really looking forward to that. Of course, I will report back next week on what happened. Uh, of course, some things that happen on tour will stay on tour. It's a little bit like it's a little bit, <laughs> it's a bit like Vegas, Mardi Gras for, um, oh, Mardi Gras. <laughs> Mardi Gras for startups and investors, I suppose, Elliot. So you know, we don't tell all the secrets. But uh, hi to the South Start gang. So delighted to catch up with everyone. Uh, in the meantime, you have a great weekend, Elliot, and I'll catch you Monday at 2pm on the show. See you then.